jump into the morning sermon. First of all is next Sunday. We'll have a guest speaker. We'll be having a few different ones in this year, uh, mostly older men who live locally that are we're blessed to have come preach to us. So I hope you can be here next week. Pastor Johnson has decades of ministry experience and was a great blessing to us last year when we had him in to preach. So if you're able to be here, then please do so. And as I've said to the church often, if you will sort of allow me to have other people in to preach, it will be good for us. It will be good for me to take a week off and to listen to preaching as well. And I know that since it's the word of God and that's what's going to be preached, we all will receive a blessing. The other one is that all of the sermons that we preach from the pulpit here are now available as a podcast. We actually have the uh, audio for all of the sermons on RenewalBaptist.com. If you visit the website, you're able to look and see a link that has every sermon organized by date, by series, by Bible passage. But mainly I wanted to get it on the podcast just because maybe there's some people who subscribe to a lot that if you hit subscribe, you would remember to have it pop up in your feed, listen to the ones that you missed, plus the fact that the other sermon library where we have the audio uploaded to is run by a pastor of a small church up in Illinois, so I wanted them in more permanent type databases so that hopefully, I'd at least for myself, if I revisit things throughout the years, I'd be able to go back and see where the sermon was and be able to listen to it, and if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, it's on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and on Anchor as well. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3 is where we are in our preaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And we will speak on the subject this morning, patiently waiting for Christ's return. Patiently waiting for Christ's return. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to pray one more time now that you would bless this time that is set apart to the preaching of the word of God. I pray, as I said earlier, that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. And I pray now for every listener as well, that you would remove the distractions from our mind, that for just the next few moments, we'd be able to give our undivided attention to the word of God and to push aside our worries or thoughts about our problems, our plans, about lunch or about anything else it is that would come to our mind, that we would be able to focus on the word of God. I pray you'd help me preach now and I pray most of all if there's anybody here who's never received Christ as their savior and put their faith 100% in him alone for salvation. I pray that that would happen here today. Bless now the words of the Lord. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. We've just finished taking three weeks to walk through chapter two of second Thessalonians where the writing was a little bit complex and where the thrust of the message that Paul was talking about was to tell them not to be deceived by any means that came against them to try and claim that the great tribulation had already started. He told them, do not be deceived. Remember, there's many things that have to happen first. The Antichrist has to be revealed. His great apostasy called the abomination of desolation. And several other things has to happen before that time period called the day of the Lord or the great tribulation is underway. I believe in verse number one of chapter two, he called their attention first to the fact that they would be gathered to the Lord in the rapture and was telling them, don't be deceived. Don't be worried. Don't be rattled. What I taught you is correct. The day of the Lord, the time of wrath is not for you. 
And in First and Second Thessalonians, the theme of these epistles has been so much estacology and the, meaning the study of end times and calling their attention to the rapture and to the day of the Lord, to deliverance and to wrath and to remember to have hope that though the end of all days is sure to come at some point, that they were to take hope in the fact that God was their defender, that God would one day lead a righteous recompense of those who had persecuted them so often. And for them, and also sometimes for us, it's exciting to study these truths about what the Word of God says about prophecy and about the end times and what is sure to come as God has proclaimed it will come. It's edifying. It's exciting. And there's so much hype that can come around getting even obsessed with the study of end times and arguing each and every fine point and try to figure out who has it right that there's also a danger for them, which we see in the story, but also for us, is that we can become so excited that about these spiritual things, about the study of the end times and whatever it may be, that it actually leads to distracting us from what we're supposed to be doing on a day-to-day level. It's a wonderful thing to study. God's people should be ashamed if they have no appetite to study the Word of God and to parse out the doctrines and to see what is God saying. But it also would be a shame if we are an expert in our own mind about these doctrines and things that we're studying, yet we fail to do our day-to-day responsibilities that the Word of God has called us to practically carry out. It leads, as we said last time when we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, how Paul talks about the rapture, talks about the day of the Lord. But then to close that epistle, he, it's almost like he's saying, okay, now hold on, hold on, hold on, wait. There's a whole lot of other things you need to be focused on right now, which is all of these specific instructions that he gave them to love one another, to serve the, to serve each other, and ultimately to be serving the Lord. The danger then can be that on the one hand, we don't care about studying and say, oh, well, it'll all work itself out. But the other danger on the other hand is that we could become so obsessed with the end times doctrines or any other doctrine in the word of God that we somewhat spiritually get our head up in the clouds and become hyper spiritual, which can lead to incessant arguing. And we fail to get to work as the Lord has called us to get to work. I believe in study. I believe in knowing the doctrines. But if you study about salvation and know all the answers about about it in the Word of God, yet fail to ever speak to other people or do something practically to give or whatever it may be to see that that doctrine of salvation is actually heard by people who need it, then we're failing to do what God has called us to do. Some have said there are people who are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. I tend to think that the opposite of that is true most of the time. Most of the time, the problem is that people are so earthly minded that they're not any heavenly good. And we're distracted by the cares of this world that call to our flesh and it impacts our service to the Lord. But it is possible, as we'll see here in chapter three, to get out of balance so that we're so obsessed with studying and spiritual things that we fail to do what God has called us to do on a day-by-day basis. I struggled even this morning whether to leave this in, whether it was just a quote I wanted to read or if it actually fit. But if you'll stick with me, I think it fits a little bit. This is from the writings of Charles Spurgeon when he's writing and warning those who are training for the ministry to be aware of people who become so obsessed with arguing that that's all that they want to do. And so let me read the quote and then I'll tie it in a little bit more to what we're saying. 
Spurgeon said, when a man has a particularly empty head, he generally sets up for a great judge, especially in religion. Read the sarcasm, okay? None is so wise as the man who knows nothing. His ignorance is the mother of his impudence and the nurse of his obstinacy. And though he does not know a bee from a bull's foot, he settles matters as if all wisdom were at his fingers ends. The Pope himself is not more infallible. Hear him talk after he has been at a meeting and heard a sermon, and you will know how to pull a good man to pieces if you never knew it before. He sees faults where there are none. And if there be a few things amiss, he makes every mouse into an elephant. I wish I could talk like Spurgeon. Just this dry old English language. And I love his quotes, so I'm sorry if, if you get bored from time to time when I read them. But for me, they're fascinating. He continues about this person and says, Although you might put all his wit into an eggshell, he weighs the sermon in the balances of his conceit with all the airs of a born and bred Solomon. If it be up to his standard, he lays on his praise with a trowel. But if it be not to his taste, he growls and barks and snaps at it like a dog at a hedgehog. Wise men in this world are like trees in a hedge. There is only one here and there. When these rare men talk together upon a discourse, it is good for the ears to hear them. But the, bra the bragging wiseacres I am speaking of are vainly puffed up by their fleshly minds. Wiseacres literally means a wise guy. That would be the way that we would say it. Someone who's wise in their own mind. And their quibbling is as senseless as the cackle of geese on a common. Nothing comes out of a sack but what was in it. And their bag is empty. They shake nothing but wind out of it. It is very likely that neither ministers nor their sermons are perfect. The best garden may have a few weeds in it. The cleanest corn may have some chaff. But cavaliers cavil at anything or nothing and find fault for the sake of showing off their deep knowledge. Sooner than their tongues have a holiday, they would complain that the grass is not a nice shade of blue and say that the sky would have looked neater if it had been whitewashed. Now, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that sometimes you run into people who in their own minds are so spiritual that they're not content to know the truth and even present the truth. They're never content unless they have convinced you that you are wrong and that they are right. And far too often, this type of person who would be obsessed with argumentation and with proving everyone wrong will actually be failing to be the practical servant of the Lord and help that God calls us to be. And there are some people, I, I, I try to, I make myself available. I like to talk with people I disagree with. I like to see where I may be able to learn. But there are some people that you realize after a while, they're not interested in having a discussion about the truth. They're interested in converting their own disciples. And that is their only end goal. And at some point when someone has showed themselves to be not really a student of the truth, but to be foolish in their insistence and in their pride that they are always right, I think I would be doing a more spiritual thing to go home and play a game with my daughter than I would be to argue with someone who's not interested in hearing or learning but rather in proclaiming their own wisdom. Let's see. 
This is, what I'm saying is this is not what Christ calls us to do in these last days. He's not called us to be an expert and wise in our own mind about every single thing, while then at the same time neglecting to do what Jesus said we are supposed to do. As Christians, we are always supposed to follow the example of Jesus Christ. And Christ knew more truth than anybody, and he could talk to those Pharisees, and he instantly had an answer that would prove that they were wrong. So much so that the lawyers and the the Pharisees and the priests stopped asking him questions because in his wisdom and everything he spoke being the word of God, he was able to always enter into debate and to win and use wisdom. And sometimes they asked him a question and he said, well, I'll answer that question. But first you answer this question. He used wisdom. But what were his days filled with? Not just debating those who were rejecting the truth, but they were filled with walking about with talking, with teaching, with working, with healing, with giving the gospel, with pointing people to Christ. And yes, God incarnate in the flesh set aside some of his time to get down on his own hands and knees and wash the feet of his disciples. So then, what is a faith that is pleasing to God? It's a faith that's put into action. It's a faith that is accompanied by work. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And all of us are called to follow Christ's example. And remember that there's only so much daylight. There's only so much time to serve the Lord. And just like a day has a sun that rises and it continues and it goes to its peak and then it begins to go down and that daylight is gone and lost forever. So too Christ said of his time on earth and by example about your and I's time on earth that we only have so much time to work, to serve the Lord, to give the gospel. So then what does patiently waiting for Christ look like? Verse number five of chapter three says in the Lord, direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Isaiah 40, 31 is one of our theme verses here at the church with the theme of renewal. Verse 31 says, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So then we're called to do what? To wait upon the Lord. What does that look like? The point that I'm going to try to communicate this morning is that waiting on God does not look like us sitting down, looking at our watch, twiddling our thumbs, saying, oh, well, God's coming back. Oh, well, God's going to do it. It's rather waiting on God the way the Bible defines it is. Let, let me let me read you from my notes. What does it mean? The word wait. It means to expect to have patient and confident trust. Simply speaking, it's faith. It's faith that while we wait on God to come back, while we wait for Christ to return, while we wait for God to do what he has promised to do, we seek him, we trust him, and this leads us ultimately to serving him. The confident expectation of a positive result in which we place great hope. So then we are to wait upon the Lord and wait for his return. As in modern language, we would use the phrase wait on a table. What does that do? Does the waiter say, well, I'm waiting for the table to do something? No, it means to serve, to attend to. And when we talk about it with our eyes pointed towards heaven, it means we're patiently waiting for Christ, but the patient waiting for Christ's return involves work. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 19. And as he heard these things, he added 
and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. I recently heard a Jewish political commentator who was trying to explain, an Orthodox Jew who was trying to explain why the Jews have not accepted Christ as their Messiah. And one of the things he said well, was what the Gospels described that Jesus did did not fulfill our expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to do. He said, we are expecting the Messiah to be a political figure that sets up a kingdom. And the answer is yes, Jesus did not come and fulfill what they were expecting at that time in the exact way that they thought he was going to. And while the Old Testament is filled with passages that say the Messiah is going to reign from Jerusalem, he's going to sit on the throne, he's going to set up his kingdom. It also is undeniable that the Old Testament is filled with passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 that say this Messiah who is to reign is also going to lay down his life and be bruised and broken and killed for our sins. The Lord will place upon him the iniquity of us all and with his stripes we will be healed. You see, even the disciples like Peter and James and John, Jesus did not fulfill their expectations what they were looking for at that time. So Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a parable. Why? Because we're almost to Jerusalem and because the disciples in their mind thought when we get to Jerusalem, that's when he's going to set up his kingdom and defeat the Romans and fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies that say the Messiah will be king and will reign from Jerusalem. And Jesus kept trying to tell them over and over again, I know you're expecting me to, to fight the Romans, set you free, set up my kingdom. But what I'm revealing to you now is that I'm here at this point in time to die for your sins and the sins of all mankind so that your salvation can be won. Then I'm going to return to God. And at a time that you don't know, I'll come back for my church and eventually I'll come to earth and set up my kingdom. So I'm God. I'm not violating what the Old Testament says. I'm just fulfilling it accurately in a way you didn't expect. But Jesus, knowing that their thinking was off and would continue to be off all the way till he ascended before heaven, he had given them the great commission. And Jesus said, now I return to my father in Acts chapter one. And they said, OK, we have one more question before you leave. Wilt thou at this time set up thy kingdom? Like, when are you going to set up your kingdom? And Jesus patiently said, it is not for you to know the times which the father alone holds in his hand. But ye shall be witnesses unto me. Judea, Samaria, and all around the world. In other words, yes, live in expectation that I'm going to return. But you're not just sitting around waiting for me. You're going to be giving the gospel, carrying out the Great Commission, making disciples, starting churches, and preaching the word. And expect me to come back like the angel said. Why stand you here gazing? This Jesus who ascended in a cloud will so come in like manner. But don't stand around gazing. Expect him to come back. But when he comes back, may he find us working. So this was the purpose of the parable. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. That pictures Christ. Christ is going to heaven. At some point, he's coming back. And he called his 10 servants, which represented the disciples and all of us, and delivered unto them 10 pounds, meaning a measure of money, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. 
If you read the rest of the parable, he gave to some five pounds, to some two pounds, whatever it was. He gave them all a different amount of money to be a steward of and to manage. And those who were wise took their two pounds and went and invested them in the market so that when the Lord returned, it had grown to four. They were being wise stewards and investors of that which God had given them to manage. I I hope I don't have to explain every single phrase. It's all talking about us. And what we're supposed to do while we're waiting patiently for Christ to return and to make things right. And God, by the way, in the parable, the master was just as pleased with the one who took one pound and grew it to two as he was with the one who took two pounds and grew it to four. You see, God is not interested so much in quantity as he is in quality. Well, I can't get thousands of people saved or build a church that is a mega church like some people can. That's not what God's judging you or I over. He's judging us with what we did, with the resources, the money, the time, the talent, the opportunities, the health, the years, whatever it is. And God says, do you take what I have given you and grow it and invest it and manage it wisely for the kingdom of God? And there was only one he was displeased with. And it was a servant who took one pound. And when his Lord came back, he said, Have you invested it? Have you earned interest? Have you wisely managed what I gave you? And he said, Lord, I was afraid. So I took the one pound you gave me. I hid it in a napkin and buried it in the earth. But look, at least I didn't lose it. The rebuke was given. You're a wicked servant. You should have known better. You should not have been fearful. You should have lived by faith. Took what I've given you and invested it for me. And made something of what I gave you with your opportunities. And so too, Christ will not be displeased with us if we failed to achieve what someone else was able to achieve. We all have different talents. We all have different opportunities and gifts and times and seasons of life. But if we take what God has given us and we sit upon it and we never serve Him by faith, then He will rebuke us. So then it could be possible as the man who Spurgeon was talking about to have an opinion on everything, to argue and find fault with everyone around us, but to have failed to actually live for Christ in a practical way that touches the lives of others, which should be our goal. So then the master said to them what our master says to us, occupy till I come, expect that I'm coming back and get to work, do something with the opportunities that I have given you. Number one, let's look to the text here of chapter three. Number one here, the special relationship. Paul continues to show how special and affectionate his relationship was with this church that he had founded at Thessalonica. And as we said, some of the letters that he writes, he's rebuking them and saying, stop doing all of this wicked stuff. But to this church, though he does have some instruction, some correction, some rebuke, he pours out a heart of love that says, when I was worried about you, didn't know how you were doing. I sent Timothy to check on you. Timothy came back and said they're continuing in their faith. They're spreading their faith. They're being faithful. And Paul said, everywhere I go and whenever I pray, I say, thank you, God, for this church. Thank you for their faith. And we see this demonstrated here in the first few verses. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, Paul says, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you. What does Paul say as he begins to close out this last letter that he wrote as part of Scripture to them? He says, Pray for me. 
He says, I know that you're truly children of God. I'm facing obstacles in the ministry. There's still souls that need to be won. There's still enemies that we need to be delivered from. I have things that I have to overcome. And I want to know that you're praying for me. You're praying for the mission team as we go and as we serve the Lord. Prayer is power paramount to anything we try to do for God. If we try to do it in our flesh, even though it be a good thing and a spiritual thing, if we do not bathe it in prayer and seek the Lord's blessing first, then we will fail. Paul knew we need the blessing of God. So he said to this church, would you please remember to pray for us? And I could say to you this morning, would you please remember to pray for me? And I can say to myself, would you please remember to pray for the people of this congregation and the needs that they have requested. Because we need to know that we have partners in life and in faith who will go to God on our behalf and lift up prayers. What then does Paul pray for? In this instance, he does not pray for health. He doesn't pray for financial provision, though none of those things are wrong to pray for. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. That phrase, free course, the Bible translators here wrote in the margin, free course or run, that the word of the Lord literally may run. It means that it may go forth unobstructed, without hindrance, run forward and do what? Be glorified. Then he says, even as it is with you. He says, pray for me. He says, pray for my ministry. Then he says, Oh, and by the way, I recognize that though there have been enemies in Thessalonica and there will be, the word of the Lord has run unobstructed in your midst. It's been glorified. God himself has been lifted up and you are bringing glory to God and to his word because you're continuing to live by faith. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith. If you study the life of the Apostle Paul, you see that he had so many enemies. He had so many obstructions, even physical problems and shipwreck and beatings in those passages where he lists all of those things that he had been through. And here he says, pray that the word of God may be unobstructed, but also pray that we would be delivered from the enemies who would hinder the preaching of the word of God. The Bible tells us that when Paul went to Thessalonica to found this church, it was a port city that had a lot of wealth and a lot of trade. It was known for its heathen temples and worship of idols. And Paul said to them, you've turned from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven. But there were people in that town who were not pleased that people were getting converted from a life of sin to serve the Lord. And the Jews specifically persecuted this church and persecuted Paul and helped to run him out of town. And they heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea. And they left Thessalonica and traveled to that other city so that they could hinder him, oppose him, slander him, and try to stop the word of the Lord. Another word that they put in the margin for their translation of the word unreasonable is absurd. He's saying unreasonable, absurd men who have no real purpose, no real belief, who cannot be reasoned with. Would you pray that God would deliver us from them because they're actually wicked? They have no purpose other than to stop the word of the Lord. They're being used by Satan. As David said, as the leader of the nation of Israel, I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. You cannot make peace with someone who has no goal of peace. Only your destruction. 
And just last week as we talked about that verse and talked about the fact that the irrational anti-Semitism that we see in our world today and throughout history is evidence of a spiritual warfare and people who have rejected God. Same thing that happened last year happened during the sermon last Sunday morning. Someone went and left anti-Semitic flyers on all of the cars of our parking lot that basically said God wants the Jews to die and all the Jews are antichrist. And this time, thankfully, we were able to get all the flyers pulled off, I think, before hardly anybody saw that. But as we did before, we rebuke all forms of anti-Semitism and racism and hatred in the name of Jesus Christ. So if anybody ever hears this, just stop, please, putting them on our cars. They'll be thrown away. Paul says these men are what? They're unreasonable. They're absurd. They're wicked. In another place, in Romans, he said, We beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He described it as a ministry partnership, that as he was traveling, preaching the gospel, he said, Would you strive together with me? How? In prayer. And specifically, that I may be delivered from them which do not believe in Judea. Paul requested that God would deliver him from his enemies. Moving quickly, verse number 3 continues. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we could pause and talk for the next half hour just on the phrase, the Lord is faithful. Praise Him for His faithfulness. We are not always faithful, but He is always faithful. We sin, we make mistakes, but He's never sinned. He's never made a mistake. He's never let you down and He never will. He's faithful. He will establish you. He will make you rooted and grounded in the faith if you will let the Word of God do that work in your heart. And remember also that God is our defender. God will keep you from evil. There's many things to fear in life. There's many things to worry about. But remember ultimately that as a child of God, you are under God's care. Remember as Paul told them throughout these letters, expect Christ to come. Live for eternity. Don't set your roots so deeply in this world that you allow the fears of what may happen in this life to consume you. Jesus said even of terrorists or those who would seek to kill you, He said, fear not them which kill can kill the body, but fear Him who has power to destroy the body, but also the soul in hell. So then we fear only God. And if someone were to take our life as a child of God, they can only do so if God allows it. And we would be in His presence forever. What is there to fear? There's nothing to truly fear as a child of God. A woman called a financial advice show that was given by a Christian one time. And she said, well, well, here's my income and here's my 401k and here's my health insurance and my social security and everything looks good on paper. But I've just been saving up for so long and for so long. And, and but somehow I still get this feeling that I don't have enough. And at what point do I reach a milestone where I really know that I've made it and I'm OK? And the answer to the question was, when you get to heaven and she laughed. But the answer is true. Your hope cannot be in your money or in financial provisions. They're fleeting. They will be gone. We're looking for Christ. So if then if fear comes upon you, just remember God's faithful. He can establish you. He can ground you in the faith. He's able to perform it and to keep you from the evil, whatever it is that causes you fear. Then, as I said, this is under the heading of the special relationship. Paul says, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you or concerning you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. What is Paul saying? He simply says, I believe in you. I have confidence that you will continue to serve the Lord faithfully. 
But what does he point to? Not their ability, not their strength. He says, we have confidence in God concerning you that you will continue to do and are now doing what we have taught you. And our commands, by the way, always they always came from the Lord. The commands were not the commands of Paul. They were the commands of God. And he says, God is faithful. God is able. I believe that you will notice the word do the things which ye both do present tense and will do. That is an action word. What's he saying? What you're doing now, keep doing it. I believe God will sustain you and establish you. I have faith that you through the power of the Lord will continue to what to do to put into action your faith and to serve God while you patiently wait. For Christ return. Philippians 1.6, one of Pastor Jay's favorite verses, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Who's going to perform it? Not my power, not yours, but God will. God began the work. He will perform it till when? The day of Jesus Christ. Till the end of all things is come. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. To do is an action. God will work in you to will, to show you what you should do, and to assist you in actually doing it. Paul demonstrates the special relationship by asking for prayer, then by praising them for the fact that the God's word has had free course with them and has accomplished its purpose. He then expresses his faith in God that they will be faithful. And then we come to the main verse for this morning, which is verse number five. Verse number five, which we read at the beginning. Okay, and the Lord directs your hearts into what? The love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. This is Paul praying for them. And the Lord, he's, he's praying for them and continues his prayer by saying, may God direct your hearts into two things. The love of God. Have the same love that God has for you and into the patient waiting for Christ. Here it is in verse number five. I may re-summarize at some point, but every chapter of first and second Thessalonians, he has referenced the coming of the Lord. Therefore, all of these instructions that he gives in a practical sense, he's saying, the Lord is coming. Pray without ceasing. The Lord is coming. Rejoice evermore. Work and do what we've commanded you to do. The Lord is coming. Now, I just wanted to be a little bit clear and transparent in my reading about this verse this week. Some people believe that what Paul was trying to convey, there's two options. One is patient waiting for Christ, waiting for Christ to return, or the patience of Christ. The, the, the patience that Christ himself has towards all, I want you to have it. And as a matter of fact, the Bible translators here at this passage of scripture, they put in the text, the patient waiting for Christ, then they put in the margin or the patience of Christ. So then I just wanted to be clear about that, but whatever exactly the Bible is trying to convey, both of them absolutely fit with all the teachings of the Bible. The patience and love of God, we should seek to have it and show it to other people. The patient waiting for Christ would have to do with us living with expectation 
Christ is coming for us. And that's what it says. I think it's it's perfectly fine to uh, meaning that it's trying to convey. But the entire message of the whole New Testament tells us we should be waiting for Christ to return. We're not waiting for the Antichrist. As I said last week, Paul never directed and said, now when the man of sin shows up, run to the mountains, get ready to do this. Here's how you face him. No, he said, look for Christ, wait for Christ to return. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says God saved you, he's turned you from serving idols to the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. What are we supposed to do? To wait, to patiently wait for Jesus to come from heaven for us. In James chapter 5, James is addressing Jews who got saved, who were scattered and had to flee their homes because of intense hatred and persecution against them. And he tells them, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto what? The coming of the Lord. So then, be patient, but specifically, be patient for the event that one day Jesus will come and will set right all that is not right at this very moment. Then he gives the illustration of the husbandman or of the farmer, and he waits. He does what? He waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. He has long patience for it until he received the rain. Okay, so James says, be patient, wait for Christ's return, but do it like a farmer does. Now, does a farmer say, well, I'm going to be patient for the crops to come, so let me sit here and stare at this field and eventually it's going to give me fruit. No, the farmer does is patient. He does wait. But he works. He toils. He gets up a sweat by plowing that ground to make it fertile. He plants the seed. He watches. He sees that the rain comes. And at the right time, he gets into the field and he harvests that crop. Then James 5.8, Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The New Testament writers never intended to communicate. It's happening right now. But they always intended to communicate. It's drawing nigh. It's coming. As the book of Acts says, Pentecost. And Joel says, we're in the last days. It's the idea of imminence, which doesn't mean it will happen by this point in time. But it could. It overhangs us. It's coming at any moment. Christ could return for his church and the tribulation period could begin. Therefore, yes, we expect him. We wait for him, but we serve him. We believe him. We believe that he's coming again, just like he said he would. And Paul said, so then it doesn't matter. He said, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. But then he also said right after that, whether we wake or sleep, we shall live with him. No big deal, Paul said, if you die before the rapture happens, God will just resurrect your body and then you will live with him forever. So we live our life in expectation of patiently waiting for his return. First Corinthians eleven twenty six, which speaks of the Lord's Supper and the institution of the Lord's table, which we'll do again here, hopefully very soon as a church body. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. The word there for show means proclaim. You proclaim by partaking in the Lord's Supper. I believe in His blood. I believe in His body. I believe in His resurrection. You proclaim His death. Till when? Till He come. So at the Lord's Supper, we're saying, Lord, we're keeping this ordinance of the church to remind us of your death, burial, and resurrection. And we will continue to do it until you come back for us. 
because we're living our life with the expectation you will return and we will do this with you in heaven again. I'm going to move quickly now. Stick with me if you can. Number one was the special relationship. Number two, the bad behavior. Yes, this church that he praised so much, that he poured out love and affection and nonstop praise and told people about everywhere he went, there was some bad behavior there too. We saw in chapter 2 there was some false doctrine that needed corrected. Here we see there's some behavior going on in the church that Paul has to call out. You see, there are no perfect people. There are no perfect churches. There is only a perfect Savior. Verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, just quick pause, again, everything that Paul commands or directs, he does so with the authority of God. It's God's words, not the words of Paul. That ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Okay, so he says, I command you, I direct you in the name of the Lord Jesus to do something. That is that you withdraw yourselves or begin to separate yourselves from every man or woman who claims to be a Christian brother or sister in Christ who is walking disorderly. The word here for disorderly means irregularly. It means moral deviation. In other words, it simply means deviating from what is morally right, from what you've been taught to do. And then again, one more time here, he says from the traditions which ye have received of us. But the word for tradition means precept. It means a law. It means that which is delivered. It means the instructions. It was not a tradition like, well, we always had church at this time, so don't change the start time by 15 minutes. Keep the traditions. No, he's saying keep the ordinances that God gave to us and that we gave to you. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he directed them to warn the unruly. Here is perhaps an escalation that sometimes we warn those who are doing wrong. Then eventually we say to another Christian, if you're going to continue to live in sin, there's going to be some separation here that we may call you to repent. Every brother, that refers to other believers. So then sometimes God does call us with the heart of love and humility to rebuke sin, confront sin, and to separate out of love and with the heart of Christ for the purpose of restoration. In 1 Corinthians 5, he was addressing specifically unrepentant sexual sin within the church, but then he broadens it to other sins as well and gives us this example. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then ye must needs go out of the world. Paul says the only way that you actually could not keep company with or walk in fellowship with or be separate from people who are living in these sins as if you left the world completely because sin is everywhere. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or railer or drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. You see what he's saying? I'm not talking about the whole world, but specifically Christian believers within your fellowship. If they refuse to repent, you need to rebuke. And at some point, there might need to be some level of separation where you say, maybe I'm not going to come to your house and, 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 uh, you know, fellowship, hang out with you for two hours every Friday night like I did before because you're refusing to repent. And for a time, I'm not shunning you or hating you, but I'm saying I'm not going to pretend like you're not walking in sin you need to repent of 
which the Word of God says you do. And then he illustrates by that saying, I'm not talking about judging them that are without, meaning without the church, knowing not God, but rather to judge them that are within. Therefore, them that are without, God judges, but put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Later on in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, he reminds them, though, of this principle by saying, First of all, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Then he reminds them, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. What does Galatians 6 say? Um, I actually forgot what it does say. I usually know the answer when I ask that question. Those... Uh, I'm sorry, it's escaping me. I'll have to come back to that. It talks about the process of wanting to help someone come back to the Lord, yet it says we do it with a heart of humility, considering ourselves. That's what it is. If a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore him, but do it in a spirit of meekness, meaning humility, considering yourself. You're also a sinner. We're not looking just to rebuke people for the sake of being right, but for loving them and for calling them to the truth. And isn't it wonderful that God has loved us and called us to the truth and given us the opportunity to repent. I've got to move quickly here. Stick with me. Number three, the good example. Now, the bad behavior in this context he's talking about is people who were healthy and able-bodied and should have been working to provide for their needs, yet refused to do so out of laziness. We'll come back to that in just a minute. That's what Paul was talking about in verse 6. Then in verse number 7, he begins to talk about the good example. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. A good example is so important. Character in leadership matters at all levels. And Paul says, you know what you should do because we gave you a really good example. And if you observed our lives, you would know what you should be doing. We didn't just tell you what to do. We showed you what to do. For you, This is in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 3, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Now, I, I, we'll see that even the context here makes it clear. We've talked about this over and over. But Paul says, Now God has ordained that those who give their life to full-time Christian service should be blessed by the church with the opportunity to live full-time doing that. If that's able, if that makes sense in that context, God has ordained that. It's a good thing. The workman's worthy of his hire. But yet the apostle Paul said, I have chosen to lay aside my rights for certain times in certain contexts as he went and preached to the Gentiles, he knew they may have a background of dealing with more false apostles who wanted to rob the people. So Paul, who was single, who did not have a family, who was able to give his life to it, he said, I, for a time, will not receive any offering from the church, but I'm going to use my skills as a tent maker to work at night that I may preach the gospel during the day. But at any rate, as God does say that the normal expectation is that those who are living full-time to preach the gospel as ministers and missionaries, God's people should not be begrudging to give to support them. He also requires of them to work and to be diligent in all that they do. In Ephesians 4, he says that he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. And for what? For the work of 
of the ministry. The word work has to do with labor, with toil. Same word that would be used for the physical description of work. And God says that He requires of His ministers and of His servants that they be diligent to work and apply themselves and set a good example for others that they should do the same. Yea, whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with thy might, the Bible tells us. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. This verse then applies not to making tents or to physical work, but he says the, the ones who are doing it right are those who are laboring in the word and in doctrine. So then whatever we apply ourselves to do, it may not be physical labor, but it's not following what the Bible says if Saturday night the preacher prints somebody else's outline and then 15 minutes Sunday morning he looks at it real quick and then gets up there and relies on his talent to tell stories and entertain people. No, the Bible says labor in the Word. Seek to know what the Bible's teaching that you may then feed the flock and tell them what it means. So then, to re-rack here, verse 8, we didn't need any man's bread for nothing. We wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. So note that every time he says, I didn't receive an offering from the church, he says, it's not because I didn't have the power, not because God has not ordained it. See 1 Corinthians, that passage. But why? We wanted to give up our rights, go above and beyond to give you a good example. So that when Paul is calling out the church for being lazy and for people there who should be working that weren't, he was able to say, remember what we did. Remember how we applied ourselves and we worked hard. And you ought to do the same. That's what the Word of God teaches. Now back to the bad behavior that is being addressed. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. What was the direction that came from God to the Apostle Paul? If there's people, again, the context is always those who are able to work, those who are at the time of life where their health provides for it, not talking about people who are older, who are not physically able, who are retired. But he says, here's the principle. If you refuse to work, you shouldn't be able to eat. My wife likes to say to Sarissa and about our daughter, hunger is the best sauce. I don't want to eat that because I don't like it. Okay, when you get hungry enough, you'll eat it. You'll like it. Okay, you get it. Hunger is the best sauce. So then the person who is lazy and does not want to diligently work, others should not provide for them to cover that bad behavior. And Paul says, if you like to eat, then you should get used to the idea of working. Okay? Now, there, I believe that when it comes to charity, and if you will stick with me, I may go a couple minutes over today, but I'm going to move through this because next week we have our guest pastor, and then the week after that, I'll finish up this whole Thessalonians series. There should always, I believe, be work requirements accompanying charity and giving for those who are able, because God's people should not enable laziness. Now, from time to time, we've had people come through quite often who will come in and say, I need money. Can the church give to me to help support me? And we've done all kinds of things for people. We, we've filled up a tank of gas. We've helped people get groceries and counsel. And we made up a giant list of resources. I spent a lot of time on pointing people to local food pantries and ministries that will help pay your light bill and all of those types of things. And when God's people fall on hard times, we should be willing to give and to help. And we do. But we should not enable people who are living a life of laziness that don't want to actually work. 
a Christian, famous Christian financial advisor said he was attending a very large church and they went to him and said, we're always having people come ask for things. Can you help us come up with a biblical system? And he said, what we started telling people, they'd come in the back doors and say, I, I need money, I can't eat, or I have a child, or whatever the, the reason is. Not making fun of people in those situations. Don't get me wrong. But able-bodied people who were young, who looked in, looking like they could work a job, and they instituted a policy where they said, well, there's a lot of acres out back of the church, so if you will for one hour go rake and bag the leaves, we will give you a $100 gift card to the grocery store down the road. This was 20, 30 years ago when $100 could buy more than a carton of eggs, okay? <laughs> and he said in all the years of offering that, not one person who walked in out of nowhere asking for money actually was willing to work for an hour in order to receive that gift. But a whole lot of people said, well, you're not Christians. Well, that's demeaning. That's ridiculous. You see what I'm saying? We need to not let our heart for good things get in the way of actually enabling someone to sin, to do wrong, according to what the Word of God says. People have made the rounds here. Well, they'll come in and ask for help. We've helped them. And then three years later, they come back with the exact same line and story, and they look healthy enough to actually work. So we need to be careful. And my recommendation would be here or anywhere not to provide cash for someone who asks, because that can go straight to alcohol, it can go straight to drugs. So help people, but help teach them work and accountability along with it. Proverbs 19.15 Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. See how the little ant is diligent to work, and build the mound, and you'll learn from it if you're a sluggard. Proverbs 24, I went by the field of the slothful and the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles and had covered the face thereof and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction for a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want as an armed man. Lord, help me here to, to wrap this up. Again, what is the context? It's patiently waiting for Christ's return. Many Bible commentators have wondered, though he doesn't say specifically, had this concept of we're already in the tribulation, the day of the Lord has come. Had that led them to say, what's the point of working? Let's just sit around and not work because it's all almost over anyway. No, that's not what waiting for Christ looks like. It looks like getting busy. It looks like working and doing what God has called us to actually do. A uh, life advice show that I recently heard a call from. I get a lot of illustrations from those things. That's why I listen to them. woman called in and she said, I met somebody during the pandemic of 2020. It was a woman in her 20s. She said, we knew each other for three months. We got married and now we have two kids. It's been three, four years since we got married. And every time he says he's going to go to work or he has a job, I come home and I find out he didn't go to the interview. And I, he refuses to. And we have two children, so I get up early in the morning, the wife said. I take the kids to daycare. I work a 10-hour shift. I pick up the daycare and I come home. And he doesn't even clean the house, but he plays video games and doesn't work. And what I'm saying is this would apply to young people, but to everyone. Were you to marry someone who is lazy and who will not apply themselves to work diligently like the Word of God commands, that will be a curse upon your life and upon your future. And be the, the man God gave the main uh, 
job to provide for. I forgot to put the verse up there, but the Bible says in another New Testament writing, if any man provide not for his own, he is worse than an infidel or an unbeliever and has denied the faith. God says even unbelievers have enough sense, most of them, to work to provide for those at home who can't provide for themselves. And if you as a man refuse to do so, not because you're not able, but because you won't, you're behaving worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith of Jesus Christ. But the woman too, whether it's working some outside the home or whether it's diligently caring for the children, whatever it is, it will be a curse upon your life if you refuse to apply a good work ethic like God commanded us to do. Adam was cursed with work being by the the sweat of his brow. He'd pound into the ground and try to bring forth a harvest and it would fight him. But God always had something productive for Adam to do. He named the animals. So then if we're at a time of life where it's retirement or physically unable, whatever it is, it's still a good principle to try and find some productive things to fill your time with. And I do by no means demean or cast aside, as some churches have done, those who are older and those who all they can do is pray on their knees for the church. All they can do, right? That's the most important thing. So diligently apply your time to pray, to do something, whatever God would give you to do that would be spiritually beneficial. Other principles about work is that we should give. We should honor the Lord with our first fruits. And He will make sure that we have enough. And when we give by faith, we're saying, yes, I'm working hard, but I don't value my money more than I value the kingdom of God. Support the weak. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, help support those within the church, within your family, who are unable to work or provide for themselves. And the verse being, if you don't work, then you shouldn't eat. Where am I here? Okay, commentary real quick. If y'all will let me, please forgive me. I'm going to blaze through the end of this and we'll just be dismissed with the word of prayer here today. I just, I feel led to knock it out and I'm three minutes over and I'm sorry for going late, but please give me five minutes here. The law here laid down by the apostle talking about verse 10 extends to all who are able to work for a living and who will not do it and binds us not to contribute to their support if they will not labor for it. It should be regarded as extending... I I went backwards. Boy, I got lost here. So the commentary says that it should be given as touching what? As extending, here we go, number one to the members of the church, who though poor should not be supported by their brethren unless they are willing to work in any way they can for their own maintenance. Number two to those who beg from door to door, who should never be assisted unless they are willing to do all they can do for their own support. No one can be justified in assisting a lazy man. In no possible circumstances are we to contribute to foster indolence or laziness. A man might as properly help to maintain open vice. So then what, what's he saying here? You don't go to a drug addict and give him drugs. And you don't go to a lazy person and provide their needs. You say, I'll guess you'll have to figure that out so that then they're incentivized to be able to do it. Verse 11, two more verses here to cover. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. The word here for busybodies means gossiping. It means meddling with the affairs of others. Strong's Concordance says in definition of the word busybody, to bustle about uselessly, to busy oneself about trifling, needless, and useless matters. That is, they meddle with the affairs of others, a thing which they who have nothing of their own to busy themselves about 
will be very likely to do. In other words, the text is saying, don't be idle, don't be lazy, because that will lead you to being a gossip, to meddling in the affairs of others. And if you're busy, that will help you with temptation to gossip and meddle in the lives of others. The apostle had seen that there was a tendency to this when he was in Thessalonica, and hence had commanded them in 1 Thessalonians to do their own business. The injunction, it seems, had availed little, for there is no class of persons who will heed good counsel so little as those who have a propensity to intermeddle with the affairs of others. One of the indispensable things to check is this, that each one should have enough to do himself. And one of the most pestiferous of all persons, literally meaning pest, most annoying of all people, is he who has nothing to do but look after the affairs of his neighbors. In times of affliction and want, we should be ready to lend our aid. At other times, we should feel that he can manage his own affairs as well as we can do it for him. Or if he cannot, it is his business and not ours. In other words, people with nothing to do get into trouble. Proverbs 29, 15, leave a child to himself. He will bring his mother to shame. First Timothy 5, 13 and 14, which, which we won't read. But Paul was saying, don't go and take into full-time care of the church younger widows. Why? Because eventually they'll get bored and restless and they'll want to become idle and go to house to house and become gossipers and get involved in things that they shouldn't. Paul said, so when the church needs to care for a widow, make it an older widow who's not able to to live a life of doing anything else and is not able to provide for herself. But for the younger, it would be better blessing from God if she were able to remarry, to have children, to guide the house. Because the, the principle I'm saying is if we have idleness on our hands all the time, our sin nature is going to lead us to get into things we shouldn't. Which Paul says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. And now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. What's the goal for our life? What does waiting for Christ look like? What's a good... Way to avoid the temptation to argue all day, to intermeddle in the affairs of others. Get a job, be busy, find something good to do with quietness, work, and eat your own bread. I'm going to just dismiss in prayer today. If someone wants to stay around and pray, we have side rooms. I'll meet with you. I'll pray with you. But if one of the ladies would just come and play us a recessional, I'm just going to dismiss us in prayer. And after I pray, God bless you. Forgive me for going over time today. But I pray that God would bless not me, but the declaration of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you that it's been good to be in your house today. May we take and heed the instructions of your word and what it tells us to do. May we take care of the weak. May we care for the elderly and those who are not able to work for themselves. But Lord, if you bless us with health, may we diligently apply ourselves to work for your kingdom. But yes, I wanted to make the point what Paul was saying, Lord, is part of living for Christ and being a good Christian isn't just giving out gospel tracts or talking about Bible verses. It's going to work Monday morning like you've commanded us to do. Help us to be a good example for you inside, outside of the workplace, whatever we do. May you bless your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.